what are the things that limit creativity? Like we all probably have a bit of it in in us. And I think the things that limit creativity are an environment where there's a sense of a preconceived way, that there is an, you know, there's utility, there's importance around having things done a certain way and done re- relatively consistently. But if if people feel like that is the closed door and there's no way to challenge with new ways of thinking and new opportunities, then, then they're instantly going to shut off their creative path. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Pilk Tate, the Director of Performance Systems with the ASC and Paralympic Partnerships. Our key topic for today's chat will be discussing the importance of effective planning and communication in high-performance sport. So thank you everyone that's tuning in. Feel free to send in questions if you've got some easy days already. Giving you a pump-up bill. Love Bill's podcast, Doc Doc Goose. Great pink for a guest. So great way to kick it off. I think that's a first, a comment before we even go live. But yeah, welcome, Bill. Thanks for jumping on the show. Good on you, Jake. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For those that aren't aware of your background, Bill, do you mind providing uh, your background and how you started the industry, your passion for it, and work experience you've done along the way? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I was a rower a very long time ago, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. I was lucky enough to row for Australia a couple of through that time. I at that time I was coaching a little bit, as you know, a lot of a lot of athletes will will do a bit of coaching on the side. I, I loved it. I started studying exercise science at university because of largely because of my interest in in coaching. Uh, when I finished from the early two thousands, I transitioned full time into uh, into coaching as as a career. I started at school level then through club level and ultimately um, spent um, almost 10 years coaching uh, on the Australian national team and working for the Victorian Institute as, as one of the squad coaches and then ultimately the head coach of rowing at the, at the VIS. I was lucky through that period. We obviously, m- many of your listeners would be aware we've, we had a, a golden era of, of rowing through, through the early 2000s. Thousands and you know, but I was very fortunate to be connected and able to coach some of some of the most exceptional roles that we had through that period. It certainly it was the most fun that I think I will ever have in my career. I can't imagine doing anything that was that's more challenging and more enjoyable than that. And that finished up in around about 2017 when I transitioned into the the role of which ultimately became the general manager of high performance at the Victorian Institute of Sport. It saw me overseeing. A handful of programs. I think at, at at one time or another, I've managed most of the programs direct at the um, and and that very different in each in each environment. Some some environments I was working quite closely with coaches. Others were really just trying to set the conditions for success around ensuring they had great performance teams and there was there was good planning cycles in and around behind our our coaches and. And I also saw the startup of the VIS's coach development program, which is a shared program between the Australian Institute of Sport and the VIS. 
And then very recently, I transitioned across into my new role, which is working for the Australian Sports Commission and the Actively, looking after the or overseeing the engagement of the network. So the Institutes of Sport and our games delivery partners in the AOC, Paralympics Australia and Com Games Australia and how they work to support our sports in delivering the outcomes for the high-performance sports system is, you know, at the Olympics, Winter Olympics, Paralympics, Winter Paralympics and Com Games through this, you know, what's called the Green and Gold Runway up until Brisbane. And also a big part of my role is shared across with Paralympics Australia, where my 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 role there is to oversee the engagement of, in support of, you know, outstanding Paralympic outcomes at, at major events coming up. So that's a bit of a whirlwind too, but mainly coaching. Most recently, you know, a lot of management are now more into the strategy stuff at a broader performance sports system level. Uh, very good. Yeah, thank you for sharing, mate. It provides good context on the on the topic and, and why you chose it, I guess. So along your journey, both from an athlete as well as coach, who have been some strong influences or mentors, if you like, that have helped shape your philosophy? First and foremost, it would be a number of the key athletes that that I got to deal with when I was when I was training. I had I, I rode right on the back end of the area of the awesome foursome, and so I had athletes. And, and the one the one probably who I learned the most from is Drew Ginn, you know, multiple Olympic gold medalist. But I would say I would not, I would say the most creative and physically determined person I know. He taught me so much about how to go about solving a problem and not seeking to solve it the easiest possible way. That that there's a virtue in learning how to do it the right way and trying to figure out the way that works best for each individual each individual organism and also to challenge you know these and and existing kind of you know, belief systems and and my wife's my first wife my late my late wife Sarah Tate who was an exceptional athlete you know one of again one of the toughest athletes that I I, I but one of the most compassionate and and compassionately determined individuals and sh- she taught me a great deal about calmness and composure under pressure and I think that's such a virtue in any high performance environment and I think from a from an off the park kind of point of view people like Chris O'Brien who was one of one of the one of the top rowing coaches in the system who who really instilled a belief in me that there's almost not enough work we can do in preparing behind the scenes. Simple for the athletes when they're actually going out on the track on the on the to perform. You know, we do the complex thinking behind the scenes, and we 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 don't shirk that work so that it becomes simpler and easier um, easier for for athletes down the track. Um, and you know, more recently, my, my I got married earlier this year to to an incredible who who was also a role, but turned her hand to stair running and Alice McNamara and it's actually I'll give her a big shout out because she's just just passed her final fellowship exam as a sports physician and I would say the thing that I learned that I has reminded me from from Alice is the work ethic like work ethic almost always prevails it's very hard to it's very hard to defeat that and if you're prepared to put the effort in most people with a, a modest amount of talent can achieve a hell of a lot and i think sometimes we overstate talent and underrate and 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 consistent commitment over a long period of time so i've got a good list of i've got a good list of strong influences yeah. <laughs> yeah big time big time yeah some great teaching for everyone to take away from from that thank you for for sharing that it's a really good insight your career sort of moments that sort of spring front of mind or stories that you've experienced yeah 
Well, I think, you know, there's there's so many, like, a, a, as a coach, probably a couple of things that, that I, you know, I was really proud of. After and many of you would know in 2000, our women's eight, you know, had had a real challenging experience in at the Olympics in Athens where, you know, one of the athletes stopped rowing and there was, there was a lot of noise around that. And, and in that crew, there was some exceptional athletes and there were some exceptional young athletes also coming through. And, and I was lucky enough to be coaching those as young athletes and we got to take them on the next year off the back of some really significant challenges and the freshness of, of starting that up with with a, a, a fresh group who were prepared to dig in and, and really put the work in you know gave us a huge leg up and that year we achieved significant things including two um, winning two world championships with that group it has to be a highlight like you know that was my first year coaching on a national team I was way in over my head and I you know swam as hard as I could to to keep up with the stream effectively and I, you know I think they did a great job and and it gave it opened up a lot of opportunities for me because I because I stuck my hand up for that and had a go at it when fairness would probably st- it ordinarily might have seemed too daunting so you know that would be one two would be i reckon in in the lead up to the london olympic games i was coaching the the women's pair we had a significant injury i think they had surgery one of the you know less than 30 days before before the games and it really showed in that moment where, where we couldn't do the training we had planned for four years to do but we had incredible background data on what those athletes were doing what they were the type of loading they needed to do to, to affect, adapt and progress through to the games and I had an unbelievably good support system behind me. Incredible contact with our team doctor, Dr. Larissa Treese. Key performance team members back at home in Harry Brennan, who was our SNC lead at that t- time, Kath Prescino, who was our physiologist. And being able to plan B that looked c- completely different to plan A and pull it off and still go to the games, you know, a few weeks later and get a silver medal. I think the uh, I feel like that was a real that that required all of the tricks in the toolbox to kind of pull that one off, including real faith and and, and you know it will always be hard to top that. I think in my mind, yeah, you know, I would have liked to have had many more chances to to deliver Olympic team boats in in my coaching career before I transitioned into management. But that was certainly a great way to kind of or a fantastic memory and core principles as to why we why we do so much stuff in terms of planning and measuring and connect experts in and bring them along on the journey so that when you need them when when it's all against the wall and you need some help they understand where you're coming from they know how to help immediately and there's no latency in picking them. and yeah you know, certainly probably the thing that I'm most proud of but it was the moments where I think I I feel like we were flying the most, if you like. To the first sort of highlight in terms of the world championship, that young team, you sort of reference that you're, yeah, you know, over your head at the start. How important is it, yeah. do you think, for strength conditioning coaches, high performance staff to, I guess, put themselves forward, even in, in roles that they might not be ready for, but they feel like they believe, you know, there's a little bit of inkling and belief that they could be prepared to yeah. succeed at that role? I've never met any ultimate end who haven't been incredibly ambitious and had to take chances before they were ready. Like it's it's almost been a core coaching philosophy of mine not to hold people back, not to put a, a sort of a glass ceiling on, on people. And I know that sometimes you can come unstuck. You know, you can get thrown in at the deep end. But I believe if you're good enough and you fight hard enough, you can you can find a way through those. The flip side is I just wonder how many great people people with incredible potential miss that opportunity because they don't jump at those at those big one big moments when they come along and you know i think 
the the thing that I reflect on it is that, and you know, I'm going through that a little bit in in a new career change. You know, as you're trying to work things out, most of the time it seems like the the telltale signs are pointing towards it's not going to work out. But you've just got to stick at it. You've got to you've got to persist, persistence over journey, and just not listen to that doubt in your mind or whatever it might be. You know, that's well. Falling for those doubts is the surest way to failure, you know, and resisting that and keeping on opens up that window of opportunity for success so much longer. And I would say, you know, that's really critical. And I can see coaches or performance team members and coaches, there are a few opportunities. They don't come along every day and you've got to, you've got to, you know, go hard or go home when they do come along, I think. Yeah, it's such great advice. Okay, for, for anyone that's um yeah looking to make the most out of their career or, or life in general and on the flip side significant challenges or biggest challenges that you've faced over your career um, so far what did you sort of learn from those experiences yeah I, I know I was reflecting on this um earlier I mean there's been so many little things and I think I, I spoke then to the to the moments of doubt where the you know real it hasn't looked as though things were going to work out and you know I, I've had plenty of times where I've literally, you know, in my mind, I've almost, almost in my mind, put blinkers on myself and said, no, in these moments, you just have to keep looking one step ahead and, and keep going at it. Frankly, it's bloody hard in those times. And I think in any high performance environment, whether we were talking military, medicine, business, certainly sport, there, there's going to be plenty of times if you're really doing something right on the knife stage where it's it's seeming like it might not work out or, you know, by 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 only one winner at the end so there's a lot of people who don't win so you know you've you've really just got to keep um digging at it i think in those moments i do think the hardest probably the the toughest transition for me it was transitioning out of coaching into another role within you know it, i i was at the point when i was where i was coaching that i i was quite confident in my ability to understand problems with athletes help them figure out how to solve problems I was quite comfortable dealing with athletes. You know, I think many coaches might find the times if they're honest with themselves in their career, whether it be by athletes at, at times or in situations, then I was beyond that. So I was in a good groove as far as delivering the hands-on coaching role and and all the planning and integration that worked around that. Moving from that into a, into a more strategic role is a huge leap of faith, I think. To think that you might have in helping athletes deliver their outcomes are going to transition towards an organization outcomes or even an entire sector like that's a that's a massive leap of faith but and and there was a lot of there was a lot of challenge for me in that time I thought I think you know I think it's really linked into your own sense of of self-worth and that those sort of things and on reflection I I I look back and I think it it seems like a bit of a no-brainer like of course these skills are going to transfer well of course the credibility that you you have from having dealt in the cold situation is going to help you in navigating those issues at a more strategic level. But, you know, there's no doubt that as you start out on that next step, you're kind of pushing off from the docks and you don't even know if you've got a paddle anymore sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's an, it's a nerve wrack. And and that doesn't, it doesn't change straight away. It's not like you go into the next job and, and into the next part of your career and within three or four weeks, you think, oh, I've got this now. I know what I'm doing here. Like, it takes a, a long time to sort of put those pieces together and feel like you've then got your suite of operating packages that you can utilize. So, yeah, my, I think that was probably the toughest moment. And I, and I would say the reason it was tough was I transitioned out of coaching 
not because I was finished with coaching. I, I love coaching and in many senses, I think I've always I've continued coaching people in that, in other roles in little bits and pieces and that that's I, I transitioned because, you know, I lost Sarah, I lost my wife, she passed away from cancer and we had two kids and I, I couldn't continue to coach rowing the way I was coaching. It's rowing is such a high commitment sport in terms of the early mornings and, and late nights every day. I couldn't raise children and do that. We'll have a point in their career where they'll either need to do something else for a period of time for family reasons. We see a lot of that with our women coaches at the moment and the system is definitely getting better at, at, at finding ways to support these people because they have such great knowledge. We want to keep them in the system, them too, to think, to imagine they might be able to take a break and do something else and come back. And I felt like that. What am I going to do? Like, this is all I know. This is what I'm good at. What else would there be? You know, and it turns out there's quite a lot that you can do to contribute if you're, if you're bold enough to push off the docks without a paddle. To constantly keep arising throughout the, the chat already, and I think it's a great takeaway for, for those listening and, and for myself as well, that, that imposter syndrome that we call it just keeps popping up throughout your whole career, whether you're transitioning from athlete to coach or from coach to more admin roles or, or managing um, yeah. staff for the first time. It's, it's always going to be there, so you've got to be able to manage it. It's never going to be away, go away. Think about Jack, like the the athlete scenario. You wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to embark on a campaign as an athlete where you, you know, oh, I'm just going to win this. This is easy. Like, yeah. I always feel like you want that know, challenge. Yeah, you want to. If you're not feeling a bit puckered going into it, well, then why why are you doing it? And maybe that's not true in all, all careers. I, I don't know. You know, like I've never had a desk job. I don't know what that's like to do just mundane day to day, but. The thrill of working in a high-performance environment is that uncertainty around, you know, we better do everything we possibly can to make sure we get there. We better dot every I and cross every T, otherwise we might not get there. That's the thrill and, you know, part of the privilege of, of working in the industry that we work, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, it's probably a good segue for moving over into our, to the key topic that you chose. Um, can you share some key principles, I guess, for a manager um, that sh- you know, should keep in mind when it comes to strategic planning. Yeah, um, sure. I, look, I, I can only talk about the the things that I that I think about in our sort of plan do and, and review cycles, or, or that that I've you know really tried. I think the first thing, and this is this has become very apparent to me. You know, a very you know my best friend probably in the in the industry taught me or put words to this recently. It's it's trying to understand the key hypothesis of the problem before you actually go and solve the problem. And I think I've always had that mindset of actually not just rolling through doing the things that we do or trying to answer the easy question that you think might be there from the get-go. If you're trying to solve a problem like the athlete needs to be whatever that measure is in terms of height, speed, whatever, what is the gap that we're trying to solve then what are all of the things that could go towards um, in, impacting that gap? What are all the reasons that, that could underlie us um, being able to get to that? And then they're into a, into a well-articulated plan. So the, the first thing I would say is in planning is understand the problem that you're trying to solve for in the first instance and don't, don't conflate and confuse those things with the things you've always done. Um, and the or, or the have always been done. Um, I think secondly, once you've actually really mapped the problem that you're trying to solve for, be creative around and trying to to 
explore the ways that that problem could be or that the plan could be uh, brought together. So often, particularly if we almost almost call it the engineering mindset, it's about trying to then come back to rigid principles. But we're dealing with very, very you know, it's hub form of sport, particularly it's a very complex environment. There's a lot of things changing all the time. So an element of creativity and freshness is important because of that. I also think it's important because, you know, one of my key principles that I used when I was writing training programs was, you know, we're trying to always beast and defeat the uh, diminished returns you get from just doing the same thing. You're always trying to think of, you know, when are we starting to lose that extra benefit from doing this thing and do I need to change the signal? When do I need to change the signal to continue to adapt? And I think I like that in overall planning. You know, if you if we just roll it through the same template process all the time, the adaptation that they get from any plan, whether it's a commitment to a training plan, a commitment to an organisational plan, is is going to fade over time. So having that freshness from a little bit of creativity and um, planning problem is probably the next thing that I think is is really important. Another friend, a colleague from the system said to me recently, moments during the plan to check on the progress, but if you keep opening the oven all the time to check on whether the cake's baked, you're going to bake properly. And I think that that's... I actually really like that analogy because, you know, I think there's a real, there's a temptation to do, we get drawn towards one of two things. One is we either never check it and we get to the end and it's it's burnt or it's totally undercooked because we we're afraid to check in on it. Or we constantly check in and we, you know, imagine in a, in a training program, we're constantly testing and athletes are feeling as though they never get a block of time where they can just lay into the work without fear because they know that this is just about huge adaptation in this moment. So making really overdoing that and resisting the temptation to overdo, you know, that review process. And then I think the final thing, and again, I think there are, I've seen this done really, really well. And and then also I've seen a performance environments where this isn't done at all. That review process is so critical to to the whole cycle working effectively and a couple of years ago we, we actually got the AIS sent a bunch of us to the Australian Army Link Centre in Townsville at the back of Townsville to observe them off the back of a 10-day exercise do their after action review with the purpose of sharing coaching approaches from our point of view to them and us seeing their process for review and the thing the thing that stood out for me you know there's nothing really fancy or you know, even particularly modern or innovative about their process. It's amazingly effective because one, they do the same thing really consistently so they know exactly what to do. Like doing an after action review for those for those soldiers is like putting on an old glove. Like they know exactly what to expect. So they've been thinking about it. They've been aggregating their thoughts together to bring it forward for the start of the review and therefore they get a much more thorough process. And the second part of it was... They do it, They rather than try and do one big review, they do it block of cascade. So like a platoon will do their review and then someone will cascade that, those key actions up into a, you know, a branch review, which will then go right up into a company review and, and on and on. And they cascade up and forward. And again, sometimes I wonder whether reviews donors were intimidated about bringing such big groups together to try and, you know, really reconsider and imagine and, and ideate what went right and wrong versus being able to be happy to do it in small groups and give it to responsible people to then bring it 
transport and aggregated. And so more recently, that 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 notion of having a well having a really consistent review process, I think, is really important. But then being able to break it down into into smaller bite-sized chunks to people, I think, is the is probably a new thing that I've been thinking about more recently in the last few years. You know, really good planning processes. To, to me, that they're the the core the core elements of it that that I think you know historically have worked well for me, and I think think a useful kind of go tos for people. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for breaking that down into four sort of four key areas. Going back to the creative one, I think it's point two for those listening in that struggle to tap into their creative side. Do you have some tips to sort of I guess fire that or what that fine? Oh, uh, this is so. This is an area of huge interest at the moment for me because I think. I didn't think about it a lot. I actually realized that I'm a talent and I think I have like no talent, but I love the process of being creative and it's something that I really admire in in people. I think I've I've seen we've had people that have come and talked to us from even people from like Cirque du Soleil that that do really deliberate evoking activities ahead of ahead of of yeah, any planning session or or any kind of, you know, I guess discussion. I, I'm not bold brave and I'm certainly not extrovert enough to be able to do a lot of those things. I was more thinking about like, what are the things that limit creativity? Like we all probably have a bit of it in in us. And I think the things that limit creativity are an environment where there's a sense of a preconceived way, that there is an, you know, there's utility, there's importance around having things done a certain way and done re- relatively consistently but if and there's no way to challenge with new ways of thinking and new opportunities then then they're instantly going to shut off their creative pathway so i think being really careful at a creative environment thinking about the ways that we make sure we're not we're not really setting up an environment that limits creativity might be the easier way for people so that yeah that is you know, being really overt, if you're the leader in the group, you know, trying to overtly talk about, we're open to ideas, let's, let's, let's for a moment, like, let's create a bit of time for free discussion. The, there's the, you know, improvised humor sort of thing. If you go to an improv session, I've never been to one, but I've seen them on TV, you know, I think the golden rule of improv is you have to, you have to lead off from where the last point, you can't shut it down can't shut the last person's comment down and take it off in a new direction. You have to go with where they were going with their last point and then steer it in the direction you want to take it. And I think that they are good rules in terms of engagement around, you know, four blocks of time. Obviously, when you're trying to land ideas, you up a little bit, but but ensuring that people don't just answer the last question by saying the point that they want to take, that there's a commitment to trying to help build upon the ideas that, that have that have come before. And maybe the, the final thing that sat with me a little bit, and you know, I, I don't, I haven't got clarity in this in my head. We were talking, myself and my our coach development officer, or lead at VIS, Claire Lamb, and I had an experience a few months ago with a person within the Australian sports system who's more connected to country and is trying to help us understand how to leverage that in in And he he talked about an interesting concept around our traditional custodians of our land talking more around effectively around the campfire and sharing ideas in the spirit of building knowledge together not sharing ideas in an effort to try and replace someone else's ideas and i think that sometimes in sport particularly where we we come at it from a real expert mindset there is a sense of i want to replace my i want to replace your idea with my great idea 
and and your idea gets shoved off to the side versus that idea of I'm going to share some knowledge. If that helps you and that builds upon your that scaffolds around your understanding of of performance, that's success to me. Like you know, I'm not here to replace your ideas. I'm here to give you something, and maybe it's useful to you. And I, I actually love that. And if that if that became a real strength of our sporting system, one of the strengths of our sporting system that connects us to our um, natural heritage in Australia, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and going back to that in terms of like reviews and the reflection piece as a, as a team, do you think it, the environment that you're hosting that review, you know, like at, around having it, let's say, on a campfire and just going outdoors compared to, I guess, in an office can help yeah. stimulate a bit more creativity and different lateral thinking if that's the perp if that's one of the key areas that the group needs yeah, a, a colleague of mine at work at the moment and i are talking about having um planning sessions out in the bush because thinking i think a change of scene absolutely helps um people um open their mind to think i also think the opposite of that is true just doing it at work does i would say does limit some people's ability to tap into their side and they're open to new ideas side of their personality that they might be incapable of but they've but when they're in a familiar environment they operate in that familiar way and you know we've seen that live like we've had we've had experiences you know when i was working at, at victoria institute of sport the professional development opportunity for the group and if we did it even within the precinct of work people people clearly articulated they struggle to separate their mind from work Whereas when they were taken to a completely different situation, it was a lot easier for them. And, you know, one of the things I know a number of footy clubs will do, the professional footy clubs in Melbourne, you know, many of them have used the Victorian Institute of Sport from time to time to bring the whole playing group and performance team after, you know, key matches or a decent to-do review days outside of their own environment. They've got great performance environments. You know, our AFL clubs in Australia are incredibly well set up. And they probably have as good a facilities as most of the Institute of Sports do. But a change of scene, you know, is, is really valued to them in terms of being able to open people's minds to next step that they need to take to take the game to the next level or their performance to the next level. So, yeah, I think environment is pretty important. Yeah, well said. And, and moving on, I guess, for the athletes listening in, I guess, putting your coach's hat on, what are, what are some practical tips to improve communication on on game day or event day or yeah. you know, the pressures at its highest? Yeah, look, I think I've thought a lot recently about performance language and I think it was something that you know, I never thought about it in a formal sense when I was coaching, but I was, you know, I think I was always very deliberate with the, the words that I use. Like, words have meanings and using them sounds so stupid to say that, really. Words have meanings, but they often get, they often get interchanged with other things and you know, I've heard in rowing, for example, in my native sport, when we were doing analytics, a lot of the time, when we we're doing but a lot of the time, people would just get confused with between power and speed or power and force or even um, acceleration and speed. And these things would get interchanged. And what it would effectively mean is people were not seeing what they thought they were seeing. And it was causing great confusion. So taking time to find the right, being consistent within the performance team around that language, saying this is what we call that and that is what that means, I think is really significant. And I remember talking to one of the AFLW coaches about that, um, Peter Searle, who I think coached the Saints in, in the early couple of years, who's the best coach of, of women's football in Australia. 
you know, she spoke very directly at, at World's Class to World's Best conference a few years ago at the AIS around exactly that, around creating specific language and trying to be disciplined to stick to it. And I think that that is, that's, you know, quite critical. I think the other part of it, and it's somewhat ironic when you're doing your podcasts and I feel like I'm, you know, doing 95% of the talking is consolidating your thoughts down. I would always say to younger coaches, if you came out with me, Jack, even even probably having had limited experience with rowing, you sat in the tinny with me, see a whole lot of stuff that's going right and wrong. You would look at the symmetry of blade work and even little timing things, and you'd see obvious things that would be not quite right. Right, and you might think you might rightly think, well, why is this guy sitting in the boat and not saying anything about that thing? And the reality is, even you know, I, I would often have coaches out with me, and I think, oh, what are, what's that say doing? Why are they doing that? And you'd be sort of, I would say to people, there's for every sort of ten things I see, I might try to address one thing, and and the thing I choose to address needs to be a very deliberate process, and I'm weighing up constantly. What is what is the effect of that system? So we're trying to make the boat go as fast as possible from the start to the finish. We're not trying to get the blade work perfect. The the timing and the symmetry of the blade entry might be a factor that improves that speed of the bow ball from the start line to the finish line, but it's not it's not a measure of success. But it's a at best it's a pseudo measure of of improvement maybe. So. Being really careful about the things you communicate on, I think, is 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 really important. Being disciplined around it, and you know, I think the benefit of that for athletes is they get more they get more time to think early in their careers. They don't know how to use that time, but great athletes use that time to really hone in on the detail of the of the thing they're trying to do, and they value the free space that you get by having more gaps between the feedback you get and getting much better feedback when you actually get much higher quality and probably at fewer junctures would be my advice yeah that's great great advice resonates does that mean with developing athletes you are giving a little bit more feedback to build that sort of awareness and i guess for them to to to, i guess educate them but then as you start to see that they've got a bit more maturity you start to sort of shift that back to that mode that you're talking about before where it's less as well yeah that's it situational leadership model where you know you start off doing something and you know you don't know what you don't know and then you realize no and then you know eventually you get to that kind of state where you don't even have to think about what you're doing and through those stages of development you need to be supported differently when you when you are starting out particularly when you don't know what you don't know you need you need really specific and, and immediate feedback on on pointing out the the thing you're trying to do when you know enough to know you've got to work on it then perhaps the type of feedback you're getting is more like so the first one is is like almost like a you know any accountants are listening will forgive me someone said recently the job of the accountant is just to, to solve the problems like there's no money here there's money here that's a terrible generalization but you know early on you might actually be very quickly pointing out the, the key thing so the next part is much more around trying to help them connect the dots between those pieces of feedback. And so that's going to be a different type of feedback, you know, as they get towards that sense of um, flow and mastery of, of, of whatever activity they're doing, whether it's playing as a team or an individual athlete performing in the swimming pool, you know, you, you're probably much as a coach, 
you're much more aligned to standing beside the athlete and looking at the problem together and kind of going, okay, I'm thinking this. Yep, that's great. I think that's a good instinct. Why don't you try that? I'll give you feedback on this part. You think about that part and let's bring that feedback together after you've done it. And they go and do it and, and then you review it afterwards sort of thing. Staged to some degree as they as they as athletes move through that staging. Maybe that's one of the things that coaches need to be aware of as they're working with athletes is if you've worked with an athlete for a long period of time, the chances are they've transitioned through those stages. So have you transitioned your coaching style with them? Or are you still the same coach they had when they started off with you? And I would say that could be a difficulty for them not able to step back and have a look at that and consider how they might want to change their approach. And I think it's a deliberate thing. You know, we, you know, Jack, I'm sure this you'd have a connection to this. I think at times, you know, you're coaching in a character at times, like you put a character on. I know when I was coaching in a single skull or in a pair, I would often have a, a different kind of persona than you might when you're coaching an eight and you, you you just didn't have the same time on your hands to get into all those nine people's headspace. So you had to coach a little bit more forthright maybe and, and adopt a slightly different character. It's a deliberate choice that you make. It's not just I'll front up and I'll just be me. Like there are choices that you can make around amplifying elements of your approach and and also turning others down depending on the situation i just wonder how often i imagine great coach and and particularly as they're progressing with their with athlete cohorts through those stages of development and when going into a new organization what's the with the with all the same age level of, of squad of athletes what's some of your favorite strategies to sort of work out when you're managing a group on what level or what stage the athletes a specific app with their development? Good question, actually. It's come to mind at odds with one another. One is, I think, going into any new scenario, trying to listen first is and 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 try and understand the exactly back to my earlier point, trying to understand the problem first is is the biggest thing. It's very powerful. And there's actually power in your opinion, particularly when you get in there. Now it's easier if you go in with some credibility and you're, if you're withholding your opinion and you have credibility, it builds a little bit of anxiety and, and well, not anxiety, anxiety is the wrong word, but it builds some, I think, too early. And even if that means really articulating to people, hey, I'm, I'm just understanding a moment, I'll, I will come back to you. I just want to understand this before I jump in too quickly. I think the second part of it, though, is looking at looking across the sports system at the moment, there's a lot of talk around what makes great coaches and the one, one thing I do think about really good coaches is that they're very good instinctually around seeing through noise to, and getting to the truth of matters. Like they can kind of see individuals might bring into pressured situations to see what's at the core. And I think trusting that instinct is important. So it's a bit like that fast thinking and slow thinking mentality, like pieces of information. So if, if I have an engagement with a group of people I'll have an instinctive perspective on what is important for them and then I'll have a considered once I've thought about it over time. And sometimes I think people have to choose one or the other and I think the I've always found the better the better best use of that information is to consider both of them together. And that sounds really obvious, but I think to regard their instinct in favor of their and I think particularly for coaches there's some real there's you only become a good coach, I think, because you have great instincts and you, you would be foolish to ignore those in in the face of just logic, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, that and that, that's the second point. Trusting your instincts once you've understood the problem and yeah, you've got you've had time with the athletes. No, you, you know, taking note of your instincts as well as listening and trying to understand over a long period of time and using both of those to make to help you make your decisions about how you're going to approach things. Izzy Days uh, just sent through a question, Bill. What would be your key advice for communicating effectively to large groups? Working for she's working for a state sporting body part. And her role is to communicate changes in policy, results, etc. Question is, if, if if I had a magic um, answer for that, I'd probably be earning a lot of money solving everyone's problems. So one one thing I think again, it's two it's two things that obviously find another. Sometimes when there's complicated things to explain, people just want to re-edit the executive version of it, and often without understanding the the detail, you can't understand the executive version. So I think. It's important not to miss the critical details when you're explaining something to to a group. If you're trying to if you're trying to explain how it is going to happen, and, and often people will talk about you know why are we doing this, making sure that the reason and the benefit, what's in my interest and what's in your interest in us doing this, is really important. And the the other thing, so I would say, take time to explain enough details to make sure it's really clear why it's in their interest or what's in their interest. Two would acknowledge the risks. That are associated with them. Whenever you're doing something, if it was an if it was an absolute no-brainer and it's the most obvious thing in the world, you wouldn't need to communicate about it. We'd just do it. Often we're having to communicate around policy changes or whatever it might be, because we're we're making a call on something. We're competing interests to come up with the bet with our opinion of the best possible answer. And I think it's it's often worth acknowledging the risks of the things that might not work. Saying, look, we recognise that these things sit out here as risks but on balance we're we're doing this so that that's the that's the second part and the part would be my thing at the moment is this bottom line up front like make sure that you start the communication with what you're trying to achieve so that people from the very get-go if they only take in the first part they understand from the start this is what we're i'm proposing this and here's the reasons why here's what's in your interest Here's what, and here are the risks. That would be probably, you know, that would be an approach that I think might be worth considering. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, Izzy. Great question. For, I guess, on the topic as we start to to wrap it up, is there anything that we've missed? Uh, I feel like we've got into great detail. It's very thorough. And Izzy just wrote in, thank you, on planning and communication and the importance of, of being really clear in your strategies. But anything that you'd like to touch on before we move into the last part of the segment? who is one of Australia's greatest ever sailors, has been pushing this with the team there a lot at the moment. And it's this aviation concept of map to ground when we're when we're talking about uh, analysing information ahead of making decisions. So um, one of the one of the core principles, as I understand it, to to uh, aviation training, particularly around flight rules, is is around bearings on something. You can make the scenario outside fits your preconceptions more easily than you can if you look at the map first and then look at the ground. So bring a lot of context into it. But if we start with context, it's then very easy for us to miscons to make it fit that. We look at the ground, we see landmarks, and we look on the map and go, oh yeah, that that could be that landmark and that could be that landmark. And that sounds very familiar towards the situation if you're dealing with a team. You go, oh, they, they look cooked. They look tired. Maybe we should do this. And then you look at the data and go, oh, see, that looks like it's trending down. And that looks, okay, we better, we're taking some time off now. Whereas if you actually started looking at the data first, you start at the map, you go, okay, I need to find this, this, and this. Oh, looking out there, I can't see those landmarks. They don't look 
correct. You know, back in the sports scenario, I'm looking at the data and actually everything's showing at the moment that we just need to hold our nerve in this moment where we're going to push them towards overcompensating and and adapting to this training. And then you look at them and go, look, they're tired, but that's I'd expect them to be tired. So I'm not too worried about that at the moment because I know we've got that break plan coming up. You're probably going to make a better decision. So there there is a lot, lot of, I, I see a lot of people spinning their data or do we trust the narrative and the and the and the context that comes from experts and i think you've got to use both but i think and then bring the contexts in on top of the data that you have and you know being really hard form decisions yeah to make informed decisions so it's data and that's that's the way i think you make great data informed decisions not data directed you know the data starts in the information you start with that and then you look at the context to really understand how it works rather than rather than risk not really ever unemployed because you've started from a misconstrued point, I suppose, or perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and great way to, to wrap up yeah, that topic. Uh, moving over to the personal side, mate, in your work life, do you have pet peeves, anything that fires you up from an industry perspective? <laughs> work in an industry where I like, you know, effectively all the people that I work with I love and they're fa- fabulous people and I see the, the beauty and the strength and the challenge that they have and and that kind of it overwhelms me sometimes with these people are but the one thing that does frustrate me is a lack of candor in conversations where we we danced around and we sort of you know tiptoe around the issue and we could just talk about the issue let's say it's this let's put it on the table and talk about it because we're all we're all involved in high performance sport because we like to get get on with things so let's let's you know gilding the lily too much let's actually let's actually talk to the point so a pet peeve would be a lack of candor when we're actually getting together with like-minded people who like candor as well. And is that the best way to sort of tackle that is just to basically be the first person to raise it and tackle it head on, I guess, so to speak? I, I do think that maybe not the first person, but I think that I think it's useful to kind of try and label it out if, if it's happening to say, look, I, I'm, I'm yep. worried that we're dancing around this. You know, could at particular, it's probably hard to tell, but, you know, I'm six foot eight. And so I'm a big buffet. If I go into a meeting, that it's usually full of people that are much more articulate than I am and, and much more intelligent. And I can lean back into my buffet coaching narrative pretty quickly, I suppose. And, and sometimes actually just falling back is, is, is enough and just say, look, I reckon it's just this. I reckon we're dancing around it's just this and put it on the table. And you can almost see the relief come off people's shoulders because we're actually going to get to talk to the points. Think yeah, there's yeah. some real benefit in just getting back down to basic language and and just talking about what it is. And the favourite way to spend a day off, Bill, when you get one? Well, we 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 through my wife Alice, we got connected up with uh, a group of people who support ultra endurance racing in particularly in the high country in Victoria. So up in up as I mentioned, Alice is the, is a doctor, and and I've had a bit of um, bush experience, and we. A handful of times a year, we get to go and support these events out, you know, as far out back as you can get really in, you know, as, as remote as you can get in in Eastern Australia, realistically, given how hard it is places. You know, if you're talking about you're right out the back of, of Buller and Stirling, you know, uh, so you're hours and hours drive out of there to get to a sealed road and support these incredible people who are trying to do 160k races with you know 12k's of elevation their athletes and the amount of prep that they do and be able to sit there by a campfire in that moment when they come in and they just need 
a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of a pep up and maybe some blisters taped up and, and put them on their way with my favourite way of spending a, a day off. I'd say we've had that answer before. That's it. <laughs> At first. <laughs> Great. And like obviously we're sort of three quarters through the year of 2023 in, in September of this recording. What's on the horizon for you for the rest of the year? What are you excited about at the moment? Yeah, well, I think for me, it's really, you know, I've just started this new job and it's it's a new role. The system's never had a role that straddles across two organisations at a, at a sort of strategic level. And there's some really big things to plan this year. This, the support system is, you know, bend towards Paris for our Paralympic and Olympic athletes. And believe it or not, most of the, most of the major decisions and most of the decisions that are going to positively impact our performance in Paris and even even beyond Paris are going to happen in the I'm excited about having an incredibly busy back into the year trying to lay in some serious work so that we can sit back and enjoy, you know, green and gold success in the in the years to come. And that might sound like a bit of a sort of a trite sort of answer, but you know, for me, that that's the reason why I've jumped at the opportunity to take on you know, that's absolutely the big thing. And for those um, that aren't aware of that role that you mentioned at the start, uh, the new role that you're in, uh, what does a typical day look like a, a, a week? How do you sort of split the, the two? Is it, it's a great question. You know, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I imagine it. I mean, you're only a couple of months in, so you're probably still in that mode of yeah. putting it all together, I guess, but especially if it's a new role. No, look, it's a great Is there a bit of travel involved? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had quite a lot of domestic travel and, and because, you know, my role support of our network partners need to spend time with them i know many you know have been fortunate enough to know many of them so there's a fair bit of that but based in melbourne so the sports commission has an office in the city so i have a day or two in the city there which is you know really easy to to cross collaborate uh, with with the sports commission people have a day or two out at essendon where paralympics australia is based and that's you know, wonderful because it's a training centre. So you actually are, you know, involved in and around athletes and coming from the VA, the, the best things about that job was I was in a building where there were athletes, you know, sweating every day and, and, and doing incredible things. And then there's quite a bit of time online. You know, there's quite, we're, we're quite good at connecting around the network online through, through the rest of the time. So it's, it's complicated in terms of all of the movements. Yeah. But, you know, that said, there's never a dull moment, which is actually pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're the perfect man for the job, and yeah, thank <laughs> you for sharing with us both for, <laughs> for for athletes. I think there was some, some great practical advice there on communication in high-pressure moments, and, and of course, for high-performance staff and, and coaches as well, some great advice, practical advice around uh, strategies and, and how to maximise their planning communication in elite sports. So, I've got a couple of page of pages of notes, so I really appreciate it from from my point of view, mate, and, and no doubt the listeners do as well. Uh, for those that have any follow up questions, where's the best place to get in contact? I, th- I think probably for this uh, on my LinkedIn page, which I think is connected to the uh, screen. I'm always happy to connect to people, and have done that quite a bit through. Obviously, mentioned earlier the, the podcast series. You did a lot of great connections through. That that so i'm very happy i'd love to hear from people if they've got any follow-ups or or also any ideas on this if that's provoked anything or if you if you strongly had a visceral uh, disagreement with it 
You know, I love that. I, I really, I should have said, I really disagreement. The best ideas have come from where people have pushed back on things. So I'm really happy to hear from anyone. Fantastic. I appreciate it. And we'll uh, sure for those listening that might be listening to recording while driving, don't sweat. We'll uh, add the link to Bill's uh, LinkedIn in the show notes. So when you do part the car, you can click that and uh, yeah, direct message your thoughts. But yeah, thanks again. And, and thank you for, for everyone that's tuned in live. If you tuned in halfway, uh, make sure to listen. We didn't muck around, Bill. Drop gems from the very first uh, minute. So make sure to listen to this episode on YouTube before it's on our podcast in three weeks' time. Our next live chat is with Andrew Lullum, which will be 3 p.m. Australian Standard Time, Thursday, the 28th of September, which is next week. So I look forward to seeing you all then. Thanks again, Bill. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us. Awesome. So he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to 
yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, it might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest, or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.